Welcome to the podcast History MKE, where we bring you the best stories from Milwaukee's history. In today's episode, we're going to talk about Christopher Latham Scholes, who is the inventor of the typewriter. Not just the typewriter, but the modern keyboard. Enjoy. So our story begins in 1819 in Pennsylvania, where he's born. Um, His family history is a little bit interesting. On his mother's side, he's actually descended from two of the original pilgrims, uh, John and Priscilla Alden. And on his father's side, his grandfather fought in the Revolutionary War. He commanded a gunboat, a gunboat in the Revolutionary War. And then his father fought in the War of 1812. And it was from his service in the War of 1812 that the government actually rewarded him with some land, which is where the family settled in Pennsylvania, and Christopher was born. Um, as a teenager, uh, Scholes trained to be a printer, but he spent most of his career working as a newspaper reporter and a newspaper editor instead. Uh, he came to Milwaukee at the age of 18 to work for his brothers at the Wisconsin Democrat newspaper. And then throughout his career, he worked at various newspapers around Wisconsin in Green Bay, Kenosha, Madison, and Milwaukee. Uh, most significantly in Milwaukee, he succeeded General Rufus King as the editor of the Milwaukee Sentinel newspaper, which is still with us today as the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Um, at the age of 21, he married his sweetheart. Uh, her name was Jane McKinney. And over the years, they went on to have 10 children. And this was in Milwaukee or back in Pennsylvania? Uh, oh, in Milwaukee. Okay. Yeah, Milwaukee. So now he's a full resident in Milwaukee. Yeah, yeah. So that was when he was 21. Um, he came to Milwaukee when he was 18. Um, So he spent most of his career as a newspaper man, but on the side, his true passion, I mean, the thing he really loved to do was to invent things. So by the mid-1860s, when he was in his mid-20s, he'd already invented a newspaper addressing machine, and he was working on a page numbering invention for books and mostly for, like, tickets. Addressing machine? Did you say dressing Addressing. So he invented a machine that would address... Oh, yeah. So where each newspaper was going, advanced robot that was going to help me get dressed in the morning. Like that sounds really, really quirky and weird. That would have been way ahead of its time. Yeah. So this was for addressing newspapers to the individual subscribers. And so he was working on a page numbering machine for books, but more more applicable for like tickets. Anything you'd have sequential numbering of tickets. He was working on an invention to do that. So he worked on his inventions at a place called Kleinstuber's Machine Shop. It was a place where people could rent out space to use the machinery, the engraving equipment, and a small brass foundry. Today, we'd probably call this place an, uh, an innovation incubator or maybe maker even space. a makerspace. Yeah. Makerspace, yeah. Yep, a 19th century makerspace. The shop itself was located at uh, 322 uh, West State Street. Um, so if you're familiar with the Miller High Life Theater, at the corner of 6th and Kilbourne. This would have been in the rear of the building today, but facing State Street. So it was over on that side of town. His fellow inventor, Carlos Glidden, was impressed with the numbering machine that he was working on, and he suggested that he should invent a machine for the whole alphabet and not just numbers. Uh, Glidden even showed Scholes a July 1867 Scientific American article that featured a prototype mechanical writing machine called a tarotype, invented by John Pratt. So that's Latin for tarot, meaning wings, 
and type, meaning letters. So it was a machine for mechanical writing, uh, meaning uh, winged letters. Scholz found Pratt's design to be a little bit overly complicated, and he set out to create his own original design. It took Scholz only a week to sketch out the basic principles of his machine. It featured a single letter of type attached to a thin, hinged metal bar with a button. The button would be pressed, and then the type would mechanically strike a piece of paper set against a plate. With the aid of Carlos Glidden and Samuel Soule, Scholz produced a functioning machine within a few months, and by 1868, they'd been granted two U.S. patents in the mechanics of what they called a typewriter, because the name TerraType was terrible anyway. At this point, the three inventors knew that they were onto something, but they needed investors. So Scholz reached out to a guy named James Densmore, who was a former newspaper acquaintance of his. Densmore agreed to get involved from the very moment that he was approached, because Scholz had mailed him an invitation to invest on a typewritten letter using his own invention. Uh, Densmore was brought in as a partner who agreed to provide the financing in exchange for part ownership in the venture. Densmore proved critical in getting the machine from the prototype phase into actual production. Scholz and Densmore sat down and they decided that the reason why so many other typewriters had failed in the past, at least 50 other people had, had failed in the last 50 years, was because they had not satisfied what the two of them called the, quote, fundamental ideals essential to success. Yeah, so that's an important point. Scholz was not the guy that came up with the original idea for a typewriter. I mean, obviously, Glidden showed him an article for other machines that, you know, the people, people had that idea in the past, but nobody had been able to successfully invent one. Why? What was the barrier that had, people had trouble with? Yeah, for 50 years, at least 50 people had failed. So, yeah, like I, so I said, the, the two of them sat down and they, they laid out the fundamental ideals essential to success that others had not achieved. And that was one, the machine must be simply designed and not likely to break. Two, it must be easy to operate rapidly. Three, it must be reasonably inexpensive. And four, it must be able to function using normal writing papers. Up to this point, most typewriter prototypes used uh, tissue paper instead of normal paper. I don't know exactly why. Wow. But I, yeah, That's I don't bizarre. know. Um, Densmore personally spent over $1,000 in the development and production of four prototype machines. During this process, Scholz felt that enough improvements had been made after only about a year, but Densmore completely disagreed. Densmore kept pressing for more and more and more improvements over the next four years, much to the annoyance of Scholz. Densmore was not satisfied until the thing eventually looked and operated like what we would recognize as a typewriter today. By 1873, the machine featured a keyboard with four rows of diagonally spaced buttons, an inked ribbon, a cylindrical platen, and a spacebar. But the real genius of the 1873 Scholz invention was the keyboard itself. It was the QWERTY keyboard. What started out as two rows of numerical and alphabetical, alphabetically arranged keys eventually morphed into the modern keyboard that we all know today. His design essentially reduced, or with practice, eliminated the number of key collisions. He placed the most frequently used letters closest to the center of the board, but also kept the most common, commonly paired letters separate from one another. It was sheer brilliance. 
Huh. So if you've ever used an old-time mechanical typewriter, you know that the keys can get stuck together. His design of where he put the letters reduced or eliminated that with practice. The question is, how did he do it? There are several theories or myths as to how Scholes came up with the final keyboard. Did he employ cryptoanalysis? Did he use frequency analysis? Or, or maybe was it binary study? Nobody really knows because Christopher never told anyone how he did it. My personal belief is that we know he started out with just two rows of alphabetically and numerically arranged letters. And I assume all the people before this point, the 50 years before, they, this is what they all did, is they just did yeah, ABC, pretty much. EFG, yeah. and it just everybody's was exactly like that. They Nobody all looked to, pretty uh, similar. Yeah, and so I think just through sheer trial and error and error and error that he just started moving the letters around with the keys to get him in, a, in a, an arrangement that reduced the number of you know keys sticking together. So at this point, they were ready to produce the machine for sale to the public. Was this the only iteration, the current keyboard, or did he have multiple times that he came out with, here's the version one, here's version two, and each time the keyboard changed a little? So in those four prototypes that Densmore paid for, the keyboard did change a little bit each time. And it developed more towards what we know today, where to the point in 1873, it would be the same keyboard that you and I use today. So, uh, like I said, they're ready to produce a machine for sale to the public. They rented a former wheel, wheelwright mill located along the Milwaukee River, just south of the North Avenue Dam. They powered the factory using water from the abandoned Milwaukee and Rock River Canal. At this location, the typewriters were produced individually. It was a slow process, but it did allow for continuous improvements in the design of the machine and the manufacturing process itself. By early 1873, they had produced about 50 machines. Unfortunately, Densmore calculated that despite all their efforts and numerous improvements, it was still costing more to manufacture the machines than they could be sold for. It was time to bring in the big guns, literally. Densmore decided to approach Remington and Sons of New York. Remington was the leading manufacturer of guns, farm equipment, and sewing machines, and they were actively looking for further, to further diversify what they were manufacturing. In March 1873, the group signed a contract with Remington to produce 1,000 Scholes and Glidden typewriters at a cost of $10,000. Plus, a deal was struck to employ a couple of Remington's lead process engineers to adjust the design as needed, whose time they billed to Scholes, Glidden, and Densmore. The most significant changes that Remington made was to reduce the overall size of the machine and to replace the wooden case with one made out of metal. The mechanics, however, operated the same as the ones that Scholes invented in Milwaukee. They also decorated the metal case with a design of intricately painted flowers, which is similar to the, the, the decorations they had on their sewing machines. Scholes continued to tinker with the design and operation of his invention. The most significant changes came in 1878, when he managed to invent the shift key. With this allowed the machine to type both upper and lower case letters. It was sold as the Remington number two. So throughout the 1870s until about 1880, Scholes was selling off bits and pieces of his rights to the company to Densmore and Remington. You know, I never thought about that with a typewriter. How would a shift button work? How, how it, would that actually change it? Do they have a whole set, a second set of keys? No, what it did, if you've ever seen a mechanical typewriter, it shifts the platen 
upwards so that the second row of type on each key would be employed. So in the down position, it used one letter on the key. In the up position, it typed the other letter on the key. Okay, so like I said, so for, throughout the 1870s, uh, Scholes was selling off little bits and pieces of his ownership to Densmore and to Remington. And by 1880, he finally sold off all of the remaining rights to the company. Ironically and unfortunately, he sold out just as sales of the improved Remington number no. two were about to explode. It was about this time that, after it was at this time also that Scholes, after he'd sold off his ownership, he accused Densmore of essentially ripping him off of the profits on his invention. Why, why did he sell out of this whole thing? Well, he needed ready cash. He needed ready cash for whatever reasons. He needed cash, and so he just sell, you know, bit by bit until it was all gone. So he accused Densmore of ripping him off, you know, not giving him his due profits. And Densmore said, hey, Christopher, go back, look at your records from 1872 to 1882. And sure enough, it turns out that uh, Scholes had actually been paid more in profits than Densmore had during that same period of time. And it turns out that Densmore turned out to be the more cunning businessman over the long run. Because when he eventually sold his rights to the Remington Company, he didn't accept a single lump payment, he made an arrangement for ongoing royalties. And so over the next several decades, as Remington sold millions of typewriters, Densmore and Remington made millions of dollars. And we have no idea why the original investor, why he needed the money, why he was vulnerable and just needed out. So over the 10 years that, that Scholz was making money off his invention, he made about $57,000 within about 10 years. Um, so that, so $57,000, I'm, I'm sorry. He, he made about $25,000 in the 10 years that he was making profits from the machine, which equates to about $575,000 in today's money. So it came to about $57,000 a year he was making overall. Uh, today's money. In today's money. Okay. So he was, it was definitely a profitable thing. He was making decent money, but he wasn't like a millionaire off of this thing. So although Scholes didn't make the big bucks off his typewriter, he was proud of the impact that his invention had on women. One historian commented that, quote, perhaps one of the greatest or even the greatest achievements of the typewriter is the transformation it wrought on the social order. A strong prejudice existed against the employment of women in business. Then the typewriter came, soon to be followed by the girl typist, who blazed the way for other women to enter every department of business life. That was from the 1924 Marquette University radio broadcast. At the time, why, why specifically women? I don't understand where the connection was that this helped them versus men. Okay, well, so at the time the typewriter was introduced, business generally only employed men as secretaries, bookkeepers, and stenographers and the men were reluctant to give up their elegant handwriting. Once business saw the advantages to the typewriter, mainly that it enabled the operator to write significantly faster than by hand, they began employing women as typists. By the turn of the century, tens of thousands of women were working in offices all across America as secretaries and in typing pools. And to put it in, in solid terms, in 1874, less than 4% of all clerical jobs were held by women. By 1900, over 75% were women. And in fact, the association with women and the typewriter 
exists, goes all the way back to the very beginning. Christopher Latham Scholes employed his daughter to demonstrate how easy the machine was to operate, and she was even featured in early Scholes and Glidden advertisements. Even after Remington took ownership, their ads featured illustrations of, of attractive young women sitting at their typewriters. Before he died, Scholes himself said, quote, I do feel I've done something for the women who've always had to work so hard. This will enable them more easily to earn a living. As prices came down, many families purchased typewriters for home correspondence and student use. And by the mid-20th century, the typewriter had become a part of everyday American life. Scholes continued to tinker with inventions for the rest of his life, but nothing came close to the success of his typewriter. By the time Christopher Latham Scholes died in 1890, he'd exhausted all of his finances and died nearly penniless. He was buried in an unmarked grave at Forest Home Cemetery. It wasn't until the 50th anniversary of the typewriter that an early 20th century version of GoFundMe raised the money to place a marker at his gravesite. In 1924, a stone and bronze marker was laid with the following inscription. Christopher Latham Schultz, the father of the typewriter, dedicated by the young men and women of America in grateful memory of one who materially aided in the world's progress. So that's the story of Christopher Latham Scholes and the invention of the typewriter in Milwaukee. Oh, kind of sad the way that you've created something that's been with us all of this time and yeah. will continue yeah, his... for as long as we still type things out. And he had an unmarked grave, died penniless. Yeah, and his buddy and his buddy made millions of dollars oh, off but of his invention. Oh, but his buddy didn't screw or anything. It's... Yeah, it was just, it was fair and square business contracts. I mean... He made the decisions to sell off his company when he did. Densmore didn't. He struck the contract for you know the royalties and you know with timing, and it just turned out better for Densmore than it did for Schultz. We'll be aware to all inventors out there that you should be careful when you sell out and how much. Yeah, good point. So I also found some uh, striking facts about the typewriter. Um, you know, so the most was that a pun? Uh, yeah, it was. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, I cracked myself Terrible. up. Terrible. Uh, so we do know that when, when Samuel Morse invented the... Um, uh, Morse code, I Morse assume. code, yeah. yeah. Uh, that he employed um, cryptoanalysis in making his code. So he did research on the most... Explain to me what you mean by cryptoanalysis. So, all right, you could say, or more specifically, frequency analysis in studying how frequently each letter is used in the English language. So the, the most commonly used letters in the English language are E, in, 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 in sequential order, are E-T-A-I-N-O-S-H-R-D-L-U. And if you look at the QWERTY keyboard, six of those letters are using your right hand, and six of those letters use your left hand. And if you look at the spacing of E-T-A-I-N-O, they are all relatively close to the center of the, of the keyboard. So that explains a little bit about the success of his keyboard. Um, the, the, longest word you can, the longest word you can create in the English language using just the top row of letters is the word typewriter. Uh, the original Scholes and Glidden typewriter was an understrike typewriter. The paper was struck on the underside of the paper and so the operator could not see what was being typed. Oh. Yeah, it wasn't until another company called Underwood around 1900 came up with a front strike typewriter that you could see what you were typing. 
Wow, that really required some accuracy and memory back yes. for those who are writing a letter or writing Absolutely. Sort of so that's why, yeah, you didn't want to have keys getting stuck together or whatever. You wanted to make sure that what you were typing was exactly what was being put on the paper. Uh, the, the longest we're using only the left hand is stewardesses. Uh, there's a fellow named Mark Twain who claimed that he produced the world's first typewritten book manuscript using an 1873 Schultz and Glidden typewriter. It was for his book, Tom Sawyer. Uh, that was published in 1876. Unfortunately, many historians believe that Mr. Twain was misremembering the facts and that his first actual typewritten manuscript was for Life on the Mississippi in 1883. Uh, an alternative name for the typewriter, we already talked about the tarot type, but another name that was, another potential name was the literary piano. And then in the last hundred years, there have been several different keyboard designs that, like you said, are, quote, more efficient and faster. But because the whole infrastructure has been set up using the QWERTY and that's what people are used to, that's what generations have been taught how to use, it, they, they've all failed. And the QWERTY continues to be used today. Any idea where the word QWERTY came from, how that got dubbed instead of this guy's last name? Well, if you look at the keyboard... The first row of letters are Q-W-E-R. <laughs> and that's our story for today. Thanks for listening, and if you like what you heard, please hit subscribe. We will be back in two weeks with a short episode on the Becker Fitch House, which has its own special bar which was used during the Prohibition. I hope you'll join us then. <laughs>